We are talking about the book of Exodus, and our overarching theme is deliverance. God is the one who delivers his people from their sins. He is the one who provides for his people, and we give praise and honor and glory to God. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 16 this morning, so please take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 16. We're going to look at this passage primarily But be ready to turn to some other passages. I hope you have your Bibles this morning. I hope you have your Bibles every time you come to church and that you can look up these passages and that you can circle important words and take notes and highlight and do all of those wonderful things as we study the Word of God together. I've entitled the message today, Trust the God Who Provides. Trust the God Who Provides. Now, the people of Israel, they've come out of Egypt Under the great and miraculous working of God, he has done amazing things. He has sent all of these plagues against the Egyptians in order to compel them to let the people of Israel go. And so they saw God do these miracles and they came out of Egypt under a mighty hand. It has been a month since they left Egypt and they are facing some other situations. Last week we saw how God parted the sea. In another miraculous work, they went through the sea and were delivered from the Egyptians. And the Egyptians tried to go through the sea as well, and God closed the waters over them. It has been a month since that time, and there are other obstacles that the people of Israel face. Our first point this morning is this, that God patiently hears us. God patiently hears us. Now, what happened with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt that demonstrates his patience in hearing them. Well, they had one thing that they did pretty repetitively and on an ongoing basis. They complained. They complained. The word complain or some form of it occurs nine times in Exodus chapter 16 and the first part of 17. They complained. They were professionals at complaining. They complained, they complained, it says, just in general, they complained about being hungry, they complained against Moses, they complained against God, they complained against, uh, about being thirsty. They complained. And uh, God was not too pleased with their complaint. We, we can understand that, right? Have you ever been around somebody who just kind of complains and complains and complains some more? Have you ever been around anybody like that? We just love those people, don't we? We just, just can't wait to be around them again. Just to hear more complaining. I'm being really sarcastic, of course. We, we tend to get, uh, uh, you know, they tend to get under our skin when we hear all of this complaining. But even worse than that is sometimes when we do the complaining. We're the ones who are complaining. And even worse than that is we're complaining. We don't even know we're complaining. So we want to kind of avoid this because God is not too pleased. Keep your fingers in Exodus chapter 16. I want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10 kind of gives an overview of what we've been studying in the book of Exodus. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we find some really incredible things that it says here concerning this time period. And it's not just this one month after they left Egypt, but uh, this is kind of a summation of the entire wanderings of Israel in the wilderness. I'm going to start in verse 5. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. It says, But with most of them, the people of Israel, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. 
Now these things became our examples. Note what it says there. What's, What's happening to the people of Israel become examples for us. Now these things become, became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Now here it is more direct to what we're talking about now. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. There it says it again, to us. They're examples to us. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. What an incredible passage of scripture. Needless to say, they were complaining, and God was not too happy with their complaints. But there is an amazing thing that we see with respect to God and their complaints. He was not pleased with them, but the amazing thing is this. He heard their complaints and answered positively for them. It says it in Exodus 16, 12. I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. And what did he do? He gave them food. He heard their complaints. And what did he do? He gave them water. And he did it to show them that he was a great God who loved them truly. It says in Exodus 16, 12, the same verse, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. What a great God we have. And I tell you what, He deals with us in the same way. Because every time we sin, every time we live in a way that is contrary to Him, it's like us shaking our fist at God. It is like like us maybe hiding our face from Him or hardening our heart or complaining against Him every time we sin. And how does He deal with us? He deals with us with amazing grace. Isn't that great? He deals with us out of his amazing grace. Here are a couple of passages that always stand out to me. The first one is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that, and here it is, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until we got our act together. He didn't wait until... There was nothing wrong in our lives. He didn't wait until we started going to church faithfully every Sunday. While we were still sinners, he died for us. What great grace. What amazing grace he extends towards us. What true love he has towards us. In that he showed his love and affection towards us even while we were sinning against him. Praise be to God. Another one, and to me, this says it even stronger than this previous passage. It's two verses later in Romans 5, verse 10. It says, For if, 
When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Did you get that at the beginning? Not only did he die for us on the cross when we were sinners, he died for us on the cross He died for us on the cross when we were still his enemies. Now, you know, an enemy just kind of, this is an act of antagonism that is uh, exhibited in the relationship. It's not that we were ignoring him, but our sin is in the face of him. And while we were his enemies, he died for us. He reconciled us to himself. So, what an amazing love that we see in him. And we need to put this into action. We don't want to, if, if what happened to them is, serves as examples to us, we don't want to act like them. And so they complained, verse 10, again, 1 Corinthians 10, 10, says, don't they, uh, nor complain. That's the exhortation to us as they complained and they were destroyed by the, the destroyer. So don't complain like they complained. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, it says it again, do all things without complaining. Now, if you're here and this is something that you struggle with, complaining about things and complaining about the circumstances of your life and complaining about this and that and uh, your spouse or your children or, or your coworkers or whatever it is that you complain about, do all things without complaining. God is bigger than our situations. He is greater than the people that are around us. And we want to show faith in him. We want to show that we are trusting in him. And so rather than complaining, exhibit or show some faith and trust him. He is greater than all of our situations. Do not complain. Do not complain to God. Also, take the complaints of others against you. Take those to God and intercede for them. If we complain and He is so gracious to us, we need to show the same grace to others when they complain to us. Be an example of Christ in the lives of the people that are around you. Inevitably, every day possibly, we are going to come across people who are complaining about something. They complain to us or maybe they're complaining about us. But let us not look at them negatively, but to take that as an opportunity to intercede for them and to ask for God to work in their lives and ask for God to work in our lives. He is the one who hears us patiently, and so we must do the same. That brings us to our second point this morning. Our second point is this, that God provides our needs. God provides our needs. So the people were complaining, and they were complaining over legitimate things. So they didn't have food, right? So, I mean, that's pretty reasonable. You know, God, you brought us out here into the wilderness, and where's the food that we need to live? Did you bring us out here just to, you know, die a little while later? So it was a legitimate need. Now, While it was a legitimate need, that didn't mean or give them the right to complain about it. For example, if we, when we come to the New Testament and Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer, you remember the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven and so on and so forth. You all know that prayer? Yeah. One of the, one of the things in the prayer is, give us this day our daily bread. 
So we have that legitimate need, just as they had that legitimate need, and it is not wrong for us to ask God for the things that we need. What's, where we tend to go off track is when we start complaining about these things, and that's kind of the point. So take your true needs, here's the need for food, take your true needs to God and ask him, and have faith as you're asking him rather than complaining to him for, what's taking you so long? Why aren't you answering my prayers? Why are you making me go through this? What did I do? I'm not perfect, but I'm not so bad, right? Am I the only one that says these things, you know, to God? That's how it feels like sometimes, and that's the expression. That's when we kind of slip from faith in God to complaints against God. So let us take our legitimate needs and ask him. He is the, he is the God who provides our needs. He loves us. And he's going to provide for us. They were complaining against him, and yet he heard their, their complaints patiently, and he provided for them. He provided in a miraculous way. We have the record of the manna, right? The bread from heaven. Every day, the, man, the manna appeared. Every day, the manna appeared, and they had instructions on how they were to collect the manna. God provided this, whatever it was, nobody is really sure. I mean, they call it bread here in Scripture. He provided this bread for them every day. In the morning, they were to rise up. They were to go out. They were to collect only enough for that day, not more. They weren't supposed to stockpile it, only enough for that day. They were to use it that day, and at the end of the day, it was to be finished. And then the next morning, they would go and do the same thing. Now, the instructions for collecting the manna and using the manna actually patterned or followed after the Sabbath. And what that means is that there was this Sabbath instruction that the people of Israel were expected to follow, and they were to collect the manna for six days, but on the seventh day, they weren't supposed to do any work. They were supposed to rest from their work. And resting from their work meant that they were not to go out and collect the manna. They were to collect two days' worth on uh, the Friday and use it for two days rather than the regular one day, the other days. And that was supposed to get them through the Sabbath. Now, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Sabbath. And I might be wrong in what I'm saying. Um, I don't, I, what I'm going to say, I, I believe to be the truth, and that's why I'm going to share with you. But I could be wrong. And so I just uh, offer to you humbly, I really believe this is, what I'm going to tell you is true. But anyway, the Sabbath day. Now, this instruction about collecting the manna was given to the people of Israel before the law came on Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments, right? Now, we all know that one of the Ten Commandments is to keep the Sabbath day holy. We all, we all know that's one of the Ten commandments but, commandments. but this is before the giving of the law. And yet they were expected to follow it. Work six days, collect the manna for six days. Don't do it on the seventh day. And that was following the Sabbath. Now, this reflects God's work ethic. It is a creation mandate. And what I mean by a creation mandate is that this idea of the Sabbath is linked to creation before the giving of the law. And so there seems, there seems to be this super extending of this particular command. It is that we work for six days and we rest on the seventh day. Now, while I was growing up as a new Christian, um, people were all in a row that, you know, the government was taking out the Ten Commandments, you know, from all, the, you know, the government and public, uh, 
places. Uh, you know, we're taking it out, we're taking it out. You have no right to take it out, and so on and so forth. That was kind of the argument. Christians were just all riled up because they were removing the Ten Commandments from all the public and government buildings. And, uh, and I can understand and sympathize with that. However, there's one of these commandments that Christians in our day do not, in my opinion, do very good at following. And it is the fourth commandment. We don't seem to have this idea or this urgency or this necessity of working six days and resting one day. That just does not seem to be a part of our Christian vocabulary. We have made the Sabbath, the honoring of the Sabbath, we have made that into the attendance of church on Sunday morning for one hour, 11 to 12, or whatever time the church happens to meet. But that's not what the Sabbath is about. It is about rest. It is not about the day that you meet to worship. It is about rest. And in that respect, it is one of the commandments, and it is still one, if we believe the Ten Commandments to still be relevant, it is still one that should be observed. Now, while we observe that, and we can make some extension and application to, it's really healthy, you know, for you if you work hard and then take a day to rest. I mean, how many of us are... We work too hard, right? You know, anybody out there work too hard and you're tired and, uh, you know, you're just always tired. You just don't seem to ever have enough energy. Well, you know, maybe this contributes to it. However, the Sabbath, while it is given to, their, uh, to the people of Israel, there is a greater fulfillment of the Sabbath and that is found in Christ. Because after all, you have the Ten Commandments, which are part of the Old Covenant, and you have Christ, which is the New Covenant that has come to us. And so what we find in the Old Testament, what we find in the book of Exodus, what we find in Moses, what we find in the deliverance, what we find in the miracles, what we find in the parting of the sea, what we find in the provision of food, what we find in the provision of water, what we find in the Sabbath, we find that all of these things are shadows Old shadows pointing to the reality found in Jesus. And so the Sabbath is a shadow of the reality in the present that we celebrate in Jesus Christ. And so we look at the idea of rest, entering into that rest, and the rest that we enter into is the spiritual rest from the forgiveness of sins that is found in Jesus Christ. And that is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. If the Sabbath day was so important and it was critical that we worshiped God on the right day, we would expect to find more exhortations of it in the New Testament. But outside of the Gospels and Acts, where people were practicing going to the synagogue or wherever on the Sabbath, there is only one verse that talks about the Sabbath. And that is found in Colossians chapter 2. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 says this. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. There it is. Which are a... Now, now here's the important part. Those things which are all laws of God. Laws that God had given to the people of Israel. They are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is Christ. That means the substance of those commands, the heart of those commands, is found somehow in Jesus. 
And so we look to Jesus. He is the substance of our Sabbath rest, and we find our rest in him. Now, Hebrews chapter 4 doesn't talk about the Sabbath or use the word Sabbath uh, directly, but it does use the idea of rest. And look what it says. For we who have believed do enter that rest. We who believe have entered that rest. We will find our true rest when we come to Jesus. After all, he's the only one who can forgive us of our sins, truly. He's the only one who can lift us off the guilt that sits on our heart. He's the only one who can carry our burdens away. He is the only one that we can rest in his arms with the assurance and the comfort and the peace and the joy that comes from knowing we are with him and it is well with my soul. So we come to Jesus for the fulfillment of that. Not only did God tell them to take the manna in a certain way, patterning after the Sabbath, but he gave them the manna. He provided for them the, fr- the food. And the food that he provided for them, the manna, was food that he gave to them on a daily basis, on a daily basis. And that's going to become important in a while. I'm going to come back to that. The other thing that God provided for them was water. And in my mind, not having water is a little bit more significant than not having food, at least for a short period of time there. And so water was extremely important, as we understand. And as they discovered that they did not have enough water, their complaining intensified. They said things like, this is from chapter 17, is God with us or not? We don't have water. Is he with us or not? And they were so upset about not having water, they were ready to stone Moses, the one by whom God delivered them from Egypt. And they kept on saying, take us back to Egypt. At least we had water. Take us back to Egypt. We had food. Did you bring us out here to die? They were ready to stone Moses. And again, God graciously hears their cry for their need, and he provides for them water from the rock. God instructed Moses to strike the rock, and when he struck the rock, it came forth. The water they needed came forth. And uh, it wasn't just a little pool or a pond. The water that came forth was a water in abundance. It had to be. If you're going to satisfy the thirst of, what, 600,000 Israelites? You don't just walk up to a, a little pond, like the one in the front of our property here, and drink, all you and your animals, all 600,000 of you plus, maybe up to 2 million plus animals. You don't just uh, get a drink from here. Uh, by the time you got your drink and waited in line to get your second drink, you would have died already. You know, there's not enough water. It says in Psalm 78, 15 through 16, and this becomes, as, as several of the elements of the Exodus are repeated throughout Scripture, this, prov- this provision of the water comes back again. So it says in Psalm 78, he split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance. Notice the in abundance. Like the depths. The depths would be reference to the sea. Now, I don't know how this kind of played out, but we're not talking about a trickle. He brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. 
And so all of these people were satisfied with this water that God provided for them, this water that they needed. And ultimately, this water and the rock from which it came was meant to be a pointer towards what Jesus would do for people in reality. Now, in reality, I mean the substance. The shadow was that Moses struck the rock and all that water came out. That was the shadow. But the reality is that Christ is the rock and the living waters flow from him to us, giving us the waters that we need, the spiritual waters, the spiritual drink unto eternal life. What an amazing thing he has done for us. In 1 Corinthians again, I read it a moment ago, but here's chapter 10, verse 4. All drank the same. Now notice the use of the word spiritual here. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. And I think that this idea that the rock, that Christ followed them, he was with them, and the water that he provided for them continued to flow right in their midst for them to continue in their wanderings in the wilderness, continue to provide the water that they needed. So it's really a fascinating thing. So the streams in the desert become this idea, this prophetic idea of the provision of spiritual life that God gives to us. And I will read in Isaiah chapter 35. You can turn there in a moment. So the streams in the desert provided the water that the Israelites need. And it was meant to point to Jesus who provides the spiritual living waters that we need to continue to live on into eternal life. And so Jesus is that spiritual rock. Jesus is the bread of life. And Jesus takes us to the living waters. Come to Jesus. If you do not know Jesus this morning, come to Jesus. There is nothing like him in all of this world. There is nothing else that you need in all of your life except the presence of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 35, I believe this to be a prophetic passage that goes to the end of times, to the eternal state. And notice how it talks about these streams of waters in the desert. And in Isaiah chapter 35, I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's not very long. It says this, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. The waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. 
No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall, be, it shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. With everlasting joy on their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And those last, that last verse there, I think there's a song that we used to sing, again, as I was growing up as a Christian, that just uh, share this everlasting joy. The ransomed of the Lord shall come to Zion with singing. Our relationship to Jesus Christ and his provision for us should cause joy to well up within our hearts that overflows in joy and praise unto our God, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Christ. And that brings us to our third and final point this morning, and it is this, that God gives grace for today. We find our rest in Jesus. Our day of rest, when we take this day of rest, it should be a reminder to us that we have entered our true rest in Jesus Christ. And every day that we enter the rest we find in Jesus, it should result in thanks and praise to God. And so, just as we look at the works of creation and we look at our marriage relationships and we look at our children and all of these things point us to Jesus, so does the way that we live our lives. And when we work, we should think of Jesus and his work on the cross. And when we rest, we should praise Jesus for having entered into the rest by his great things, that great things that he has done. Thanks and praise be to God. It is meant to turn our attention to him. Not only that, not only do we turn to Jesus in our day of rest, but we turn to Jesus, the bread of life. And for this, turn with me to John chapter 6. And this is a really fascinating chapter that focuses and zeroes in on the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. And you'll see what this means as we read three sections from this chapter. Jesus is the bread of life. The first passage is John 6, verses 31 through 35. And it says this, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. There's our link to our passage in Exodus. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread... Of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. What a great passage. Jesus is the bread of life. Drop down to verses 47 and 51. 47 through 51. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which came down, comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He gave his flesh for the life of the world. And we enjoy that which he has done. And then finally, verses 57 and 58. 
John 6, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. So we find the supremacy of Christ as the bread of life. As great as the manna was, that miraculous manna that God provided for them every day, Jesus is greater than the manna. He is the true bread of life. That manna pointed to Jesus, the true bread of life. And so he becomes our daily sustenance. And then finally, let's turn back a couple of chapters in John to John chapter 4. Now in John chapter 4, we find that account where Jesus meets the woman at the well. You remember that? Now, I'm not going to go through the whole account there, but that's in John chapter 4, and it is the account of Jesus and this Samaritan woman at the well. And he talks, and he talks to her about drinking the true water, not the water from the well, but the true water where she would never thirst again. And so Jesus leads us to the waters of life. Listen to John chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, he's talking about himself, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst again. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Praise be to the Lord for Jesus Christ who has given us that living water that will flow from within unto eternal life. Praise be to to him. And the one thing that I want us to kind of remember and zero in on this, well, another thing, is this, that it is not a weekly provision that God gave to the people of Israel. It was a daily provision. And I think sometimes we feel that if we have just, if we would just go to church every once in a while, that we have done our duty. And it is great. I look out here and I just rejoice at all of you who are here. But remember that our sustenance in Jesus is a daily thing, not a weekly thing. And so we leave from here and we continue to draw on Jesus. We continue to come to him. He is our rest. He is our, our food of life. He is our river of living waters. That is what Jesus is to us. And so we come and we join and we worship him, but we continue to worship him as we go out. We continue to abide in him. We continue to rest in him. We continue to draw our spiritual strength from him every single day on into eternity. And I love how Revelation chapter 7 puts it. This, I think, is reflective of the eternal state for us. They shall never hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb, who is in the midst of the throne, he will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
So I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know what your complaint is or what your struggle is or what burden you are holding in your hands. Come to Jesus, lay it at his feet, and feed on him and drink from him every day. He is your joy. He is your comfort. He is your peace. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Let's stand as we sing our final song this morning.